Hey, hey, Mo, you are listening to Gilbert Gottfried's colossal, terrific podcast. <laughs> Why don't you say Mammy? <laughs> <laughs> This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is returning to the podcast, his second visit, because Frank and I, as well as our listeners, had so much fun with him the first time. He's a comedian, Emmy-winning comedy writer, occasional podcaster, producer, show business historian, and an actor with dozens of TV and feature film credits. As a writer, he scripted everything from the cult series Police Squad to Oscar telecast. And as a performer, he's appeared in hit TV shows like Everybody Hates Chris, Tales from the Crypt, Blue Bloods, Boston Legal, and American Dad, and was both the star and creator of his own long-running series, the award-winning sports comedy Arliss. But he's perhaps best known for his memorable work in the feature films Hollywood Nights, Mistress, Cobb, Blaze, Good Morning Vietnam, and Bull Durham, and Tim Burton's Batman. Now, celebrating its 30th anniversary in a career spanning five decades, he's worked with everyone from Robert De Niro to Madonna to Jack Nicholson and hung out with everyone from Martin Landau to Sean Connery to Robin Williams. Please welcome to the show an artist of many talents and a man who isn't afraid to share his opinions on anything and everything. The always shy and retiring Robert Wall. Well, thank you, Gilly. That was great. I, I guess all the five decades now, I met you when I started, so you're old. I know. <laughs> you guys actually remember meeting? You remember the, the, the moment? Uh, I don't know the Would exact moment. Would it have been moment. the improv? It had to be the improv or the yeah. comic strip, one or the yeah. other. Yeah. I mean, in the 70s, a, yeah. assumedly. Oh, yeah. Oh, That's yeah. scary. Uh, and a couple of times when I went out to L.A., I stayed in your house. That's right. That's yeah. right. We we go back a long time. It's good to see. He's good to talk to you. Did yeah. he replace what he ate, Robert, when he stayed? No, 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 no. Gilbert's great. Gilbert's <laughs> great. That, all these all these stories about Gilbert are they're all eh, half true. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell Robert what you had in mind for him? Oh, yeah. Well, we just had on uh, Neil Sadaka. Cool. Yeah, and great and Neil Sadaka sang his Haftorah, 
And uh, so somebody tweeted me that every guest from now on should have to sing the Haftorah. Can you do that for us now? No, I can only sing the second Haftorah. uh, (laughs) No, I couldn't. You know, I couldn't do it. Wait, I couldn't do it at my bar mitzvah. It's a true story. I used to cut Hebrew school all the time. I hated it. So every time they would drop us off, I would, me and a friend would usually walk in the door and then walk right back out as soon as the car left that dropped us off. And we'd go to the local IHOP and have breakfast and everything and eat and go walk around town. And then we'd show up to be picked up. Now, comes my bar mitzvah uh, about... Two or three weeks, I tell everybody, you know, I can't speak a word of Hebrew. And they go, no, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And I said, well, I don't know how I'm going to be fine. I can't speak a word of this stuff. And so they realized with a week to go that I can't speak a word of this stuff. So I said, listen, here's what you want to do. Just spell it out phonetically. B-A-W-R-U-C-H. Baruch. I said, I can do I'll memorize that. And with, no, 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 you'll be fine. So I said, now, two days before the bar mitzvah, they realize I can't speak a word of Hebrew. So they finally spell it all out for me. I memorize it, and I go through the actions, like like it's, you know, like I'm giving Hamlet's soliloquy. And afterwards, they said, oh, my God, you read so beautifully. And they and then uh, so I got through that and then the, and then you had to give in my temple which was a reform temple it was so reform it was actually Catholic the um, <laughs> but the, the, the but in to get bar mitzvah and not kill the party that your parents spent all this money for I had to somewhere in my speech say that I would go on to confirmation you know whatever that meant and. I didn't want to spend an extra day in Hebrew school more than, more than I had to. So the rabbi comes up to me afterwards and said, oh, you did such a great job, and I'm so proud to see that you are going to go on to confirmation. And I looked him straight in the eye and said, you know, rabbi, I am prone to lie. And, uh, and, so <laughs> I, and I never set foot in the temple again after that day. Wow. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's a rite of passage for your parents. You know, <laughs> you, you know why Gilbert can't recite his half Torah, Robert? Why? Because no, I was never bar mitzvah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you see, your parents saved a lot of money. I know. <laughs> By the way, if you ever want to see a terrific movie, I think it's called 1960. I think that's what it's called. It's a British comedy starring Eddie. What is his name? Eddie Redmayne. No, 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 no. This is much. He's a character actor. It's actually Eddie. He's usually the sidekick in something like that. Uh, um, uh, It's it's killing me. British actor. Yes, yes. You you saw him a thousand times. And uh, Helena Bonham Carter, which is the first time I saw her being funny, plays his wife. And it's about this kid in 1960s London, middle-class family, who is about to have his bar mitzvah. His older brother has had a bar mitzvah, and he got the big one with the party and everything. Well, unfortunately for him, his father's going through bad business times, and they keep cutting back on his bar mitzvah. And it's hysterical. And worse of all, should it's 1960, and should the London national team is is in the world is in the World Cup, and should it get to the finals, it's the same day as his bar mitzvah. And sure enough, that's what it's a, a wonderful, wonderful little film. It's not Eddie. Uh, what is his name? It's not Eddie Izzard. It's Eddie. Uh, okay, maybe it'll come to me later. Okay. You've seen this guy. What's it called? Nineteen sixty. I think it's called nineteen sixty. Nineteen sixty. I think it's called that. Your Oscar yeah, rant last time we you were here, Robert, was very well received. 
Oh, about the kids? By our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Well, Gilbert uh, and I tell, were going tell, over the tell It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again with the kids from Once Upon a Time in America, I guarantee you. Tell, tell us again who you will not vote for. Well, I just have a guide. I have a guide because I believe that you have to. Now, you, I got to explain my take on the whole Academy Awards. Now, I'm a proud member of the Academy, and the awards is just one part of it. They have all these great, you know, symposiums and the library and everything else, and that's the real great part of the Academy. And you're a writer you know, of past Oscar shows. Yes, I am. Yeah. And, and so I have great respect for that. But as Tommy Lee Jones uh, said one time, it's the world's greatest trade show. Uh, and he's right. That's and he's right. Line. It's there. It's, you know, it's that, this is a thing that goes out worldwide to show this is our product. This is who we are. And we're going to reward people. Now I am not of the opinion that it's not a lifetime achievement award. I totally believe it's a lifetime achievement award. And I will back that up by saying when the first line of your obituary is written, the moment you win an Oscar or more times even nominated for an Oscar, that's a lifetime achievement award. Mm-hmm. And uh, my friend from the New York Times, Richard Sandomir, who now writes obituaries, I said, what's your first line? He goes, your, most, your biggest achievement. I said, so if somebody wins the Academy Award, he goes, that's absolutely. So it is a lifetime achievement award. And I, so my whole thing is, it is about business. And I respect business. And there's certain things about it that I will vote for. Um, well, first of all, I vote for my friends. That's first and foremost. That's <laughs> honest. And here's why. Here's why. Because it is a business. And I want my friends to do well in business. I do not believe that my father, as he used to say, how come, who was not in show business, he used to say, how come somebody can be the best actor this year and he's not the best actor next year? Did he forget how to act? I said, well, he goes, ah, I'll tell you what, if everybody plays the same part, I'll tell you who the best actor is. And I would say, Dad, not even then, because people could have different interpretations. So the fact that we're judging Oscars, like, you know, it was, it was like, what he used to do? He wouldn't do it because he didn't think artists could compete. So the fact is everybody's playing a different part. If you're nominated, you're good. Let's just take it at that. So if my friend is nominated, I'm voting for them. I want them to have hospitalization the rest of their life. I want their families to do well. I'd like to see them move out of an apartment and into a house. So that's just nature because it is a business. And these things are worth money, as Tommy Lee Jones would say. Those golden statues are worth money. And if you get a nomination, you will work the rest of your life. You may not become a star, but you will work the rest of your life. So I do want my friends to do well. So that's my first criteria. Number two, no kids <laughs> under any circumstances. No kids. Again, because I respect the art form. And there's too many people who have paid their dues and have worked in shitty roles and in shitty clubs and have gone on shitty cattle calls for years and years and years. And to see some six-year-old get a nominee or a 10-year-old. I remember a couple of years ago, I'm at a function, at one of these uh, luncheons, you know, which is a lobbying thing. Remember, they're spending, remember, these Oscars, people spend, studio spends tens of millions of dollars to get these nominations and wins because they're worth it to them at the box office. Mm-hmm. They're not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. So I remember there was a movie called The Beasts of the Southern Wild. Yeah. And I'm sitting next to a part, next to this six-year-old girl and everybody's talking about how brilliant she is in Oscar nominations and I'm watching her on a Game Boy. Do you know she's playing with her Game Boy? <laughs> and, I, and, and I'm saying, are you people fucking crazy? You're going to vote for this girl and take an Oscar away from, from, a, from a 65 year old actress, which is usually who they take it away from a 40, 50, 60 year old. Sure. Uh, I said, there's not going to happen. I'm a big believer. And I also, no first timers. No rookies. I will not, under any circumstances. I believe in the old Bill Parcells, coach of the uh, Giants, who used to say, 
can they win a few games before we put them in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, it's like you see one, you know, Sandra Locke got an Oscar nomination her first time out. She did. Case closed. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> do you know how many times have we seen somebody, it's like, so, no, I believe it is for a body of work. Yes. You know, so uh, those are my pretty much, but the kid thing, not on a million years. What about no if Jennifers? They, that was, that was, you were strong on that, that well, one. Well, there was a week. lot of Jennifers, right, for a while. <laughs> there was Jennifer Hudson. There was Jennifer, who's the one who was in uh, uh, Beautiful Mind? Yeah, Jennifer Connolly. Yeah, Jennifer yeah, yeah, Holiday. Yeah, Jennifer Holiday, Jennifer Hudson. Jennifer, or, Jennifer Lawrence. Je- yeah, it was all Jennifers. <laughs> and by the way, they're all young. You ever notice that? In fact, if I'm not wrong... In the last, like, 30 years, 25, 30 years, there's only been about three women under 35 who've won an Oscar. I think, it, you know, you count Meryl Streep, the woman who won last year for the, the favorite, and I think Judy Dench and Helen Mirren, everybody else, and I'm talking about best actress, best supporting actress, is under, like, 25, 30. Yeah, of, course, most of, the, of course, most of the parts are written for them, too. Yeah, so. interesting. Well, this is a question for both of you guys. What do you think of the uh, the Oscars without a host? I thought it was fine. Yeah. I thought it was fine. Here's the problem. Well, what do you think, Gilly? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think it's it's just as boring as the ones with the host. <laughs> You're yeah. indifferent. Well, here, here's the thing. When I, when I got to work with Billy the first few years, the one thing we were respectful of at that time was that you're the host of the Oscars. It's not your show. It's not at that, you know, it's not, it's not the Billy Crystal show. It's not the David Letterman show. It's not, it's the Academy Awards. You're there. To, so we'd have, we'd back up, we'd make sure we can kill with the monologue, do your first six, eight minutes. The first 10 minutes of the show is yours. After that, get out of the way. Don't do bits. Everybody now started, just the Billy did it too. They all start, stop the show and do bits. And it's like, what the fuck? Nobody cares about going next door to the movie theater and giving everybody popcorn or getting pizza. It's like, you got to remember something else about that crowd. When you're in the Oscars, most of those people have to, the Oscars, let's say, started like, what did they start at? Five o'clock here? That means that since two o'clock in the afternoon, probably earlier, these people in the audience have been getting ready. They've spent thousands of dollars to get ready for this thing because most of them the studio don't buy tickets for unless you're an actor or a director. The other ones you have to pay for yourself. And then they got to pay for their gowns and they got to pay for their limos. They got to pay for everything else. So it costs about five, 10 grand to go to this thing. Now they get there at about three o'clock because you got to be there two hours early and they have not eaten. Right? So they sitting there. The show starts at 5 o'clock. So now they've been there about two hours before the show starts, and they're hungry, and they're, they got to go to the bathroom. And you have to remember, with each category, four out of the five nominees have lost. And they're not in a b- real big mood to hear jokes. <laughs> you could tell. <laughs> you know? So, and that goes with every category, every single one. So by the time your show's a third over, a third of the audience hates your guts. They want to be out of there. They got to go to the bathroom. They got to get something to eat. You know, they, they, you know, they're not really happy that much. And so by the, you start doing bits, you're stopping the show to do a funny comedy bit. It's not your show. Remember the it's shit Letterman time. caught for doing stupid pet tricks and, and, and the top well, he's 10 He's not alone. And, he's not alone. I yeah. mean, you had uh, selfies. You had somebody giving out pizzas. Yeah. You had Jimmy... You had Jimmy Kimmel going next door to the to the uh, to the movie theater and and then stopping the show there. It's like the people in the audience are saying, "Fuck you! I want to get out of here." Come <laughs> on, give the next goddamn award here for God's sakes! And always, you know, each year, the biggest complaint is that it went on too long. Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah, well, why? Yeah, why? Now, by law, what's interesting is by contractual. This is something I, did, I learned from Bruce Valanche. 
a lot of these uh, countries around the world, if they have it in their contract that there has to be X amount, X amount of minutes of musical entertainment, which is why the songs had to be oh, in that's sometimes. It. I never knew that. That's uh, yeah, well, it's usually a production number or a song or something like that. Wow. I don't, I don't know if that still holds today, but it used to. The other thing, too, about the Oscar ballot now, here's something this has nothing to do with the show. It's done, done with the voting. When you get an Oscar ballot, I don't know if you've ever seen one, everybody, you vote, you nominate in your own category. I'm in the actor's category. So everybody votes, nominates a best picture, and everybody votes for their own category. The only names, I mean, proper names that are on an Oscar ballot are in the acting categories. Everything else is strictly the picture. It would say best writing for original medium, and it might say Roma, Green Book, uh, you know, something else, you know, Black Panther. It never gives any of the people's names. Direction. It'll say Roma. You know, it does not say Martin Scorsese. It doesn't say Quentin Tarantino. Nowhere is anybody's name on the ballot except for the actors. Now, so that's when you say, how did this person lose 10 times? Because their name is never on the ballot. Number one. Number two is, in the last couple of years, they've gone to this system, which is, I find, a little disturbing, or maybe maybe the people like it better. You vote for one in every category. You vote, you, know, you check off one of the five names or six names, with four names, whatever it is, except for best picture. In best picture, you have to go vote one through nine, one through ten. And what, so like if you like the picture best, maybe you voted, you voted number one. If you voted for less, it goes number 10. And this has hurt, I really believe, uh, the, I have no doubt in my mind that the last few movies that got the most amount of first place votes did not win the Oscar. Because you had people, I'll just take two examples, La La Land and Roma. La La Land and Roma won every other award that night. Except best picture. Because the people who liked La La Land and Roma voted at one. The people who hated it voted at 10. So the, the, so you have movies that got the most second place votes, third place votes that beat them. And there's not a doubt in my mind that's what's happened. That is interesting. And I definitely didn't know that the, the, uh, the foreign rule about, uh, about having to have a, a, so much musical entertainment in the show. Because well, the, the first thing be. that occurs to you every year is get rid of the songs. You'll shorten the show. Yeah, but it's also tough because of the certain branches of the academy. They got their lobbying groups like sure. anybody else. Sure, sure. And uh, and uh, so you got that problem. And like you know, and basically, yeah, they should cut from the from the. If you're talking about getting a better TV broadcast, you have to cut all these crafts awards. I mean, the, like, the, the, does anybody care who wins best short subject, uh, animated or short subject? Does anybody care who? I mean, or you know, best costume design of a short film that's done in Sweden? I mean, it's like nobody cares about those awards. To be fair, the Grammys have fifty thousand categories; they show ten on TV. Yeah, right. Um, you know, so but there is, you know, they do lobby for themselves, and I can understand the lobbying. For well, that's them. where that's where the two things, as you say, are sort of crashing into each other: an entertainment show and a trade show. Right. And, and right. an industry well, show. Well, it's a trade show either way. Yeah. It's a trade show either way. Yeah, pretty but, much. And it, Tommy Lee's right. By the way, and I support that. I support that, by the way. And you were saying how the award show got formed in the first place. How they- oh, it was keep, to keep the unions out. It was to keep the unions out. The Academy didn't want, uh, you know, the, the, the different guilds to form. And they came out to this whole, they had a banquet at the Roosevelt Hotel. And uh, and Louis B. Mayer and everybody said, you don't, the Academy, we will take care of our own. You don't have to form a writer's guild. You don't have to form a director's guild. You don't have, we will take care of you. And then the, at the end of the night, the last 15, 20 minutes, they gave out these awards. And he realized that all these stars were showing up. And he said, you know, if you give them medals, the stars show up for anything. So that's how it started. Sneaky it didn't shit. Start, you know, yeah. 
on the subject of Tommy Lee, who you brought up, uh, I want to ask you about Cobb, which is also celebrating an anniversary, 25 years. Wow. How did you, and I know you, you that Ron Shelton says you gave a famously bad audition for Bull Durham. Yes. Well, <laughs> what was, did he, did he, did he write, hand you the Al Stump part? Did you have to audition again? No, that was mine. Yeah. You know, we, 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 had, we had talked about it for when we shot Bull Durham, and then he went and met, and I was in Blaze with him, and then he went off to make White Men Can't Jump, which right. was a big hit, and that gave him the clout to do Cobb and pick whoever he wanted to be in it. I like Blaze and, a lot, too. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's nice. Thank you. I'll tell Ron. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting movie because uh, a lot of what Stump wrote was what, later discredited? No, or he was. It, it was claimed that he exaggerated some things to sell books. I mean, there's. I, I it, watching the film. I mean, the film works so well on its own merits. But then I read all of these conflicting stories about what was true about Cobb, what wasn't true about Cobb. Well, about about two or three years or so, some guy writes a book with the help of the Cobb family, mm-hmm. debunking everything that Al, and, and, and anything that Al Stump. That, forget Al Stump for a second. Debunking everything bad about Ty Cobb his whole career and everything, and how all the stories about him are not true. And then he said, these are all because of Al Stump. Now, Al Stump doesn't meet Ty Cobb until 1960. So everything that happened before Al Stump met him, about this guy being a bastard and a prick and a, and a, a Klansman mm-hmm. and throwing games for money and spiking people and everybody else before 1960 lied. Everybody else, because Al Stump doesn't meet him until 1960. Right, right, this that's guy a great reti- point. This guy retires in 1930 or 19- something like that. So everybody, and then there's, interesting, recently, about five years ago, there was an audio tape discovered by about Lou Gehrig giving an interview. And on it, he's talking about the great ball players of all time, and he talks about Babe Ruth, and he talks about Walter Johnson, but he talks about Al- Ty Cobb, and he talks about what a jerk he was. So this is Lou Gehrig talking about it. So suddenly the guy blames Al Stump for everything. I see. So, you know, it sold some books, but, you know, how come no one, no one's ever, you know, in the first, here's a story, in the first Hall of Fame uh, uh, class, which is another story, the Hall of Fame is that, uh, you know, whenever I hear about this guy took this and this guy did that and this guy shouldn't be in and this guy, let me explain that the first guy they voted in was Ty Cobb, who was a racist, a bigot, threw games for money, went into the stands and beat up a quadriplegic who was helping him. <laughs> yes. <with> him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, 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 he may have killed a man, wife beater. And this was the first guy they put in the Hall of Fame. So whenever I hear this holier-than-thou morality clause, I get a little kick out of it. But interestingly enough, Cobb would not take the picture. If you see the picture of the first class in the Hall of Fame, Cobb wouldn't take it because he didn't like some of the guys who they voted in with. So Al Stump, I don't know if Al Stump was even born then when that was taken. Interesting. So, you know, it's all religious history, and that guy had to sell some books. And by the way, with the help of the Cobb family. Right, so it might have been, yeah, so it might have been revisionist history because the family had to give their... Yeah. Had to had to give their okay. Which is, you know, everybody does revisionist history. Yeah. If you want to see revisionist history, go see Once Upon a Time in America. <laughs> and now, in Hollywood. Gilbert would in like Hollywood. to ask you about Jewish players. Oh, That's, yeah. <laughs> he's interested <laughs> in Hank Greenberg sure. and Perfect. Sure. And Rod Carew. That's right. <laughs> now, um, the famous thing about the Oscars, and that is, we, we all know these, there are certain roles and certain movies that the Academy just gets an erection about. Oh, you mean the gimp mm-hmm. factor? Yeah, the gimp or a beautiful actress being ugly. Yeah, or a Holocaust movie. Yeah. Holocaust is tough to beat at the Oscars. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or the you know? Emmys. 
Well, <laughs> age is tough to beat at the Tonys. You know, if you got to play, you know, it's like, that's, you know, that, you know that, there are certain categories that are tough to beat. Um, for, you know, so uh, not because they're not worthy, it's just tough to beat. Uh, yes, uh, I, re- I remember a time, my partner on Arliss, Mike Tolan, had, pr- had cr- produced the Hank Aaron documentary, Chasing the Dream. And oh, he was up movie. for the Oscar. Yeah, and he yeah. was up for the Oscar. And he was up against the Anne Frank film. They had found a new documentary, and they actually found footage of Anne Frank in the, you know, and they had her waving out the window and everything. And uh, it's legit. So he was up against that. Now, the night of the Oscars, Mike told me that Hank Aaron came up to him and he said, uh, and he had, you know, these athletes are competitive. And he said, Michael, I saw that Anne Frank film. You know, that story's been told before. You know, so. <laughs> You know, uh, of course, and he's not wrong, but the Anne Frank movie won. You know, so that's a tough one. But you're right, of course. it's an al- There was a year when every Oscar nominee, one year, was an alcoholic. It was a year Albert Finney was up for Under the Volcano. And I think it was uh, uh, Paul Newman was playing. Oh, and The Verdict. I think The Verdict. Yeah. It was like every single actor in the category played an alcoholic. That's interesting. Every single one of them. You know, people like that. The hardest thing to do is comedy. And com- that's why for years... I was lobbying for giving a category for best comedy because it's a different animal. It's a totally different animal. And I said, you know, come on. They give out best animated film. They got best documentary. Why don't you give out best comedies? And Tom Sherrick, the great, uh, uh, he was a former, he was the president of the Academy at the time and a legendary uh, vice president of distribution and marketing at 20th Century Fox said, Robert, I 100% agree with you. And from a marketing and distribution standpoint, it's great because it allows me to put on a poster nominated for Best Comedy. And he says, but the Academy will never do it. And you know why? And I said, I know why. It's because the Golden Globes do it. He says, that's exactly right. Oh, interesting. And I said, I "I don't, you know, I don't care where a good idea comes from. If it's a good idea, it's a good idea. Now, interestingly, Ron Howard has been in favor of this. Even Harvey Weinstein in his day was in favor of this. (laughs) A lot of people are in favor of this. But the Academy, because... Because the Golden Globes do it, the Academy won't do it. Because you can count on one hand the the number of Oscar-winning comedic performances in the last yes. 25 years. Kevin Klein. What about films? You, what about films? Oh, films, uh, well, Annie Hall and what? What's since Annie Hall? That was 77. Uh, well, Shakespeare in Love. Shakespeare sort of a in comedy. Love was a But that's comedy. about it. That's and, about and it. And then that yes, makes all these comedians in movies want to do their really pretentious dramatic film. Well, you want to play Disraeli, don't you, Gil? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't you want to do a serious role, Gil? Well, yeah. In fact, I saw this. It's Walt Disraeli. <laughs> <laughs> well, going, going off a of cob again, Robert, because you're a big movie buff. Why are biopics so so hard to do well, in your opinion? I saw a great one, by the way. Did you see Love and Mercy? It's a few years old. Did you see Love and Mercy, the Brian I Wilson did. movie? I did. Very I did. well done. For half of it. <laughs> oh, he didn't like. He only liked half. The younger of it. half. The younger half. 
Yeah, uh, I didn't like the older. I didn't like the older. Well, I mean, and you, you know, you've been in a couple of good ones. Why? Why is it? Uh... Did one of them? But Cobb did not make any money. Cobb was a tremendous failure. I remember playing golf one time. Uh, I mean, Cobb bombed at the box office. Right. Now, because of the MLB network and cable, it's getting a second life, and people are you know catching on to it, and it's finding a good cult audience. But I remember one time I was playing in a the Lexus Challenge golf tournament, which was a celebrity golf tournament for C, for NBC, and I was playing with Sean Connery in a four with Sean Connery. And Connery was walking with me and he goes, you did that movie Cobb? I said, yes. He goes, I like that movie. He goes, and I'll tell you why it didn't do well. You want to know why? And I said, yeah. He goes, because it showed what it takes to be great. And Americans don't want to see what it takes to be great. And I said, well, that's interesting. I got to tell you, but it bombed in the UK too. You know, you should know that. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) Sean Connery is 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 a Cobb fan. Yeah, 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 because because it was about you know tough guy. I mean, you look at I was looking today. I mean, Raging Bull. I mean, well, you're in. I mean, you're in uh, Good Morning Vietnam, which is pseudo biography. Yeah. It's about yeah. Adrian Cronauer. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's sort based of based on a true story. Uh, That's yes. right. Yes, That's right. But there's so few of them. Did you see the Queen movie, the Freddie Mercury? Yes. What'd you think? Eh, it's okay. <laughs> why? Why do you think that so many of them? are half-baked or, or, well, or hard one, to well, do well. Well, 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 well see, but I, I said I thought it was okay, but it's a cr- tremendously successful movie. True. I mean, the, the guy put on a pair of buck teeth, lip syncs, and wins an Oscar. Okay. The, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to, to, me, to, me, to me, that's kind of like uh, you did a movie by Gene Kelly, but you didn't dance. <laughs> so, uh, but that said, he's good. Uh but, but that did very well. I said, and also the Elton John movie, I liked too. I liked it I liked too. That. I liked it too. Yeah. But people, uh, people that, that's a different thing. Cause that's jukebox musicals. Yeah. People like the music. Good point. I mean, yeah, they took liberties. The fact in the Freddie Mercury movie that when they did the Wembley Wembley Stadium thing for Live Aid, he didn't even know he had AIDS at that time. He isn't that old. Five years later. Oh yeah, they, they, mess, they mess with the uh, the. Well, they all do. I mean, yeah. look at Argo. Argo, right? I liked Argo. Terrific piece of entertainment, but the whole third act never happened. That whole scene at the airport never happened. That's all Hollywood. Well, it's so ridiculous in Argo that they uh, have to stop the plane and they uh, use rifles and blast the door open. Wouldn't that have stopped old planes from leaving at that point? And wouldn't it have stopped the plane if an army car was chasing after it? Um, again, it didn't happen. So what difference yeah. does it make? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's a movie. A it was a point. good third act. It worked. You know, it's a lot of time, uh, you know, it's, it's the old line, Billy Wilder, don't give me truth or logic. Give me emotion. So uh, Hollywood's not in the truth. It's not in the history business. I know you're Hollywood, a Wilder guy too. Hollywood is in the entertainment business. True. They but, made two movies about historically about Thomas Edison. One is Young Thomas Edison with Mickey Rooney, and the other one was Edison the Man with Spencer Tracy. And in both of them, they kind of they portray Edison as this kind of a vuncular, absent-minded, good-natured guy. Edison was a motherfucker. <laughs> Edison. <laughs> Edison was the most ruthless businessman that ever lived. Edison once hooked the you know Edison was in a in the ACDC wars when he was up against Westinghouse who owned the patent on the uh, DC and Edison had AC or vice versa forgive me whichever one Edison tried to crush Westinghouse and how he did it was there was an elephant 
named Topsy. Yeah, I was going to mention Coney the Island. Island. Oh, yeah. I know Have you this. seen yeah. this? Sure. Well, you've seen it. Well, Edison, who helped invent the electric chair, by the way, hooked up the Westinghouse's electricity. And in fact, he tried to copyright the term Westinghouse to mean electrocuted. Didn't happen. But he hooked up Westinghouse's electricity so they could euthanize the elephant. You'll see it on YouTube. The elephant gets smoke. You see it burning up and smoking, dropping dead. Horrible. And Edison filmed it with his movie cameras to show in his movie theaters. Now, Hollywood is not in the history business. You're not going to see Mickey Rooney or Spencer Tracy electrocute an elephant. <laughs> you know, right. Christopher Walken, maybe. <laughs> Do you know? Christopher Walken is Edison. <laughs> and I you remember like there that. was one year... I think one of it was the English patient. Right. And the other one was like three days in Tibet or some, whatever the hell. Seven years. Seven years in Tibet. And both, they found out in real life, both those guys were Nazis. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that they conveniently. Well, look at a beautiful mind. Yes. I mean that w- w- Russell Crowe movie. They took they whitewashed this guy's story. Yeah, yeah. He John was a ho- he, you know he was gay and a homophobe, anti-Semitic. He impregnated when he was a class teacher. He impregnated one of his students and has never paid a penny of child support. And they gave this best picture. So maybe the whitewashing you know, is partially the answer to why so many biopics. And and I heard that don't, don't in work. in a dolphin's tale, where Morgan Freeman is the brilliant doctor who comes in. They said it was actually two Scottish doctors uh-huh. that f- made the tale. Well, that's interesting because I've also heard that Finding Nemo, you know, the Nemo was not really animated. It's a real fish. <laughs> and, 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 and the fish lobby just isn't very strong, you know? Here's a bad biopic that I've heard you talk about, Robert, the Babe Ruth story. One Gilbert and love I it. love to talk love about. It. Love it. <laughs> Love that movie with William Bendix. Yep. Yes. Oh, come on. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, the guy's 50 and he's in, he's in school. And he doesn't know how to swing a bat. And, oh, forget that. It's, it's, by the way, as bad as it is, it's better than the John Goodman version. Oh, I've the, never uh, seen that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's really what bad. Arthur Hiller made. Not yeah. because of John. Not because of John. John's a great actor. But uh, but but baby, it's hysterical. I mean, it's it's just you can't stop. Tears come down your face. But <laughs> by the way, and that's part. This whole thing now. There's no bigger baseball fan in America than me. But part of the charm and the romance of baseball, where they get into the Hall of Fame stuff, is because we've grown up on a bunch of movies that you know made baseball. You know, and I love, like I said, there's no bigger baseball fan. Yeah, we than know, I. sure. The uh, but we've done that. I mean. I, my friend Jeffrey Lyons, his favorite movie is Field of Dreams. And it wasn't until I pointed out to him, I said, yeah, I like the movie a lot, except when James Earl Jones gives this speech at the end of the movie, and he says, Ray, it's about baseball, Ray. <laughs> because baseball reminds us of all that was once good in America and can be good again. And I'm sitting there saying, wait a minute. If it reminds us of all that was good, how about the fact that you couldn't play until 1947 and that everybody was coming out from behind the fence and it's all white? Like, how are we missing this? Good point. 
And, and it's funny how many people never thought about that. And Jeffrey says, well, I never thought about that, but it's still a great movie. You know, it's like, yes, it is, but you, come on. You know, you, that's a little bit, you got to do that. Did you, you ever know? see a movie about the Negro Leagues? You must have seen it because you're the big baseball guy. Bingo Long? Yeah, Bingo Long. John Bingo Bannon's Long's movie. fun movie. Yeah. Fun movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Bingo yeah. Long traveling. Uh, well, James Earl Jones. There you, know, there you go. Yes, it is. Uh, uh, in fact, I'll see Billy D. Williams when I'm at Chiller Theater. I'm going to be, hey, Gilly, have you done any of these comic Oh, yes, yes. I'm st- I did one, and I'm still doing another one. I'll take because of the 30th anniversary of Batman. That's my only connection, but it's a good one. Uh, I had a really good time, and I'm going to do Chiller Theater. I'm doing another one uh, in uh, Mohegan Sun in a couple of weeks, and Billy D. Williams will be there. So I haven't seen Billy. D. Oh, since you're doing Batman. the Terrificon? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am, yeah. and I haven't seen Billy since uh, Batman. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing him. Well, there. tell him we loved him in Bingo Long, which is a movie more people should know about. Yes, they should. And, That's the, a good and the other one that they made for HBO, I think it was called Soul of the Game. That's it is. Also excellent it is. with Delroy Lindo. You know the most underappreciated, when people talk about the best baseball movies of all time, uh, and of course it's subjective totally, uh, but the one I think is the most underappreciated one of all time is the original Bad News Bears, which I think is a great movie. It's very and good. It's about, and it's about America. It's not just about, you know, the problem in most sports films, as Ron Shelton and I would talk about, is they're always told from the point of view of the fan, do you know? And the fan only cares about one thing. Does the team win or lose? That's it. They don't care how you did it, how you got there. They want the rah-rah. The best, and it's always about the big game, the big game. Mm-hmm. Ron would tell you, there are no big games. You know, once in a bloom, there's no big games. If you think of the best sports movies, Raging Bull, uh, Bang the Drum Slowly, uh, the Hustler, Requiem for a Heavyweight. Uh, there's not about a big game. There's not about a big Bull Durham. I'll put Bull Durham in that category. Mm-hmm. It should be. It's it's not about a big game. Uh, there's a great movie about baseball called Sugar that was out about ten years ago. That was a great movie, and you'd swear it was a documentary, but it's not. It's yeah, I saw kids. you recommend that. I got to catch up to that. It's a great movie it's about these kids who come over from the Dominican Republic. They don't speak English, and they're suddenly in a minor league team in Iowa. And how do they deal with that? And it's not easy. That's a terrific film. Gilbert likes Bang the Drum Slowly. Yeah. Yeah, you've recommended it on this show. Yeah, I've always been a fan of that one. Gilly, you'll love this story then. Uh, Bang the Drum Slowly uh, is Danny Aiello's first movie. Yeah. I think it's, or it's, maybe it's The Godfather, then Bang the Drum Slowly or something like that. Or Godfather 2. And Danny could play ball. Danny knows baseball. But he gets there the first day. And if you remember, Vincent Gardenia plays the manager oh, yeah. of the team. Okay. He goes, pulls Danny aside as they go on the field. They go, Danny, uh, which one's third base? (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) Are you ready? Wait, Coda is nominated for an Academy Award. (laughs) (laughs) We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. Right after this. That's what you say. <laughs> boom, boom. It's Gilbert and Frank's Amazing Colossal Podcast. You told a great story the last time you were here about when it was during the House of Un-American Activities and Cecil B. DeMille. Yes, very famous story. Yeah. Can you tell that story? Oh, that's a great then? one. I, I was at a wedding this last week, and um, 
I was one of the people at the wedding who's a close friend of the groom's, which was the best wedding I've ever been to. I got to tell you, this guy, my friend Tom Todorov, was up in Connecticut, who's one of the great acting teachers in America and around the world. He got married to his uh, longtime girlfriend, and he had it on his property. And it turns out that Jose Feliciano lives a mile away, and he comes over and sings four songs. Wow. It was very, and the cow sills are friends. Of his, wow. So they got up and sang. It was really cool. But anyway, his, he went to school at Juilliard with Alexander Payne, the filmmaker. And Alexander and I were talking about great films. And I mentioned the story again about the famous, I think it's 1952, 53. It might be, I might be off on the year. The famous DGA meeting where this is during the Hollywood, you know, this is during the blacklist and this is during the House and American Activities Committee. And Cecil B. DeMille wanted everyone to sign a loyalty oath. And Mank, Herman Mankiewicz, I think it's a Joe Mankiewicz, maybe. Joe Mankiewicz was on the opposite side totally. Joe Mankiewicz, of course, did all about Eve sure. and a lot of great movies. And they had a, and there was a big fight about this thing. And, uh, and, and Cecil B. DeMille was leading the way. In fact, the famous scene where he wrote down, who are the people who are against this? And he, he said, it's Billy Wilder. It's William Weiler. It's Fred Zinnemann. Do you know, he laid on this thick accent to make his point. And he, the, the, the evening was going his way until finally a, a voice, you know, a hand came up in the back and they called him. He stood up and he goes, my name's Jack Ford. I make Westerns. Now, everybody knew John Ford. I mean, he's John Ford. He had six, <laughs> what, what do you have, 110 Academy Awards with him? And what's, uh, he said, you know, CB, you know more about movie making than anybody else in this room. In fact, you know more about putting people in seats than anyone else in this room. But I don't like what I'm hearing from you. And I say we go with Mankiewicz. Now, what makes this amazing is that John Ford was part of a troupe of Victor McLaughlin, Ward Bond, who if you look under anti-Semite in the dictionary, there's Ward Bond's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like liberals gr- either. Oh, no, no, he was the worst. John Wayne was, was there, but John, the difference with John Wayne was John Wayne would respect you if you disagreed with him and stood up to him. He won't agree with you, but he was, I mean, he became close friends with, with Catherine Hepburn, with Geraldine Page, did a movie with him, mm-hmm. and got her only Oscar nomination for many years, got her first Oscar nomination. So John Wayne, but Ward Bond was one of the great anti-Semites of all time. In fact, uh, Martin Landau told me a story that he was guested on Wagon Train. And Ward Bond, he was a New York actor, and he was a scene where Ward Bond came up to him, and he was supposed and he's supposed to, you know, he's supposed to punch him in the face. Well, of course, they stage it, and, you know, you misses. And comes time to shoot it, Ward Bond slugs Martin Landau, just cold cocks him. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry. So, okay, let's get one more. And Lando said, fuck you. You know, it's like Ward Bond was about the worst. But Victor McLaughlin, Ward Bond, you know, that whole crew was the John Ford crew. And so John Ford to take this stance was unbelievable. So that's what, that's, it shows you never quite know with certain people how they're going to go. It's a good story. And I love that interview with Landau you did, by the way, on your podcast. Oh, he was a great guy. so facto. He actually uh, sponsored me. Uh, I was doing Mistress, and he and De Niro actually signed my card and sponsored me into the Academy. Very nice. Wow. Yeah, that's a nice yeah. interview you did with him, and our, our listeners should check it out. And the, the story about him calling J- uh, James Dean's girlfriend uh, to, to inform her of his death is a fascinating story. Well, they were buddies. There's yeah. no question. He has he had an album. I mean, they were acting school buddies, and he had a picture album, uh, Marty, and uh, you'd see all these pictures of James Dean there. I mean, we, it, was, it, was, it was on the subject of anti-Semites. Gil, who was they were telling us? Walter Brennan was the was the big big time. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. That's what we heard. Oh, and also, you know who else told me? Andy Devine, I heard. <laughs> yes, Andy yes. Andy Devine was an anti-Semite. <laughs> now, Charles Durning, who's one of the great human beings of all time, and Charles Durning not only was a World War II vet, he was one of the soldiers who, who opened up and the camps. Yeah. He, was one of the, he was one of the guys there. And didn't talk and about he told, it. And he told me a story about Ned Beatty Ooh. going off Ooh. on the Jews. Yeah. And so that's his firsthand. And he was there. And Charlie, who would not, after seeing the camp, would not tolerate any kind of bigotry or hate. He almost went after Ted Beatty. They had to, they had to hold him back. Beatty de- de- denies the story. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll believe Charlie. I, bl- I trust Charlie. Gilbert's making a list. <laughs> you hit your anti-Semite yeah, I, list. Another one was this character actor, uh, Eugene Paulette. Yes, yes, I heard about him Eugene. too. <laughs> now, do you know? Do you know who Frank Fay was? Yes, sure, yes, yes. Like yes. Credit okay, as being Frank the first Fay, stand-up. Yes, Frank Fay is generally credited with being like the first stand-up comic. Although Will Rogers might take issue with that, but he was a monologist. Bob Hope says he taught, learned a lot from him. Frank Fay was also the biggest megalomaniac that ever lived, and uh, to a megalomaniac to the biggest degree. His um, uh, the famous story was uh, who has the biggest prick in Hollywood, and the answer was Barbara Stanwyck because she was married to Frank Fay. <laughs> the, uh, and in fact, that was her first husband, and. Many people say that the story of A Star is Born is based on the relationship between Frank Fay and Barbara Stanley. Oh. Because she was a nothing and he was a huge star. Now, however, he was such an anti-Semite, such an anti-Semite and pro-Nazi and everything else that it basically killed his career. But the craziest thing is, if you look up Google, look up Friends of Frank Fay. Which was a which was a rally at Madison Square Garden, the old Madison Square Garden. It's a Nazi rally in 1946. In 46, friends of Frank Fay, it's native. Incredible. Fr- Frank Fay was a he blamed the Jews for everything, but interestingly enough, he you know he blamed them for hurting his career. But interestingly enough, he got his huge break later. In uh, the great Antoinette Perry, who's who's the namesake of the Tony Awards, the, the Tony Awards, uh, Antoinette Perry. She produced a play called Harvey, and the guy she picked to play the lead, Elwood P. Dowd on Broadway, was Frank Fay. And Frank Fay was pissed that he lost the movie role to uh, Jimmy Stewart. Stewart. Yeah, wow. But Frank Fay, uh, he's the, the here's a great story of Frank Fay. You'll love this, Gilbert. <laughs> there was a thing where he was deposed. He had to go on trial for I don't know what the what the reason was. And his lawyer said, Frank. Do me a favor. Don't let your ego get go crazy here. You know, just downplay everything. You know, don't let them think you're this. You know, just don't let your ego lead you in this thing. And he, said, he goes, absolutely. He's sworn in. They say, what is your name? He goes, Frank Fay. What is your occupation? World's greatest entertainer. <laughs> <laughs> the lawyer nearly shits. Right? <laughs> He doesn't say anything. When he gets off the, gets off the stand, he turns to Frank and goes, what the fuck was that? And Frank looked at him and he goes, I was under oath. Oh, that's, fantastic. Oh, that's fantastic. Are you familiar with Cliff Nesteroff's book, The Comedians, Robert? Mm, I don't think we so. we got to send you a copy of it. It's good Frank Fay stories. Both you and Gil were on Osborne's show. We're on, the, we're on The Essentials. Yes. What did you pick? Uh, well, I don't know if I was on The Essentials. I was uh, a guest. Uh, oh, you were a guest. Uh, yeah, I was a guest programmer. I, the three movies I picked was uh, and I uh, was the Ernst Lubitsch, To Be or Not To Be. Oh, yeah, great choice. With Jack Benny, Carol Lombard. M- one of my favorite Westerns, The Big Country, with uh, Charlton Heston and Gregory Peck and uh, um, 
Gregory Peck. Martin Landau told me a great story about Gregory Peck. He goes, great guy, don't let him near a comedy. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> was he ever in a comedy? Oh, yeah, a few. You know, it's like Roman Holiday. Well, that's a light, but, yeah, light. But, but he told me, he told, well, I'll come back. and he, uh, Well, I'll, I'll finish the story. Yeah. Back. He was doing Pork Chop Hill, Marty, one of his first movies, about 1958 or so, doing Pork Chop Hill, and uh, Lewis Millstone was directing it, who had directed All Quiet on the Western Front. And they're lining up this big battle scene, and it's taken about an hour. And meanwhile... Landau and a couple of guys are in the trenches, you know, and they're sitting in a trench. And to pass the time, he goes to Greg and he goes, Greg. He goes, yeah, what? And he goes, did you know that 80% of most degenerates are hard? Hmm? And he goes, what? He goes, hard of hearing. <laughs> <laughs> and Greg goes, <laughs> good one, good one. <laughs> and so then as they're going, Greg, Marty notices Greg is rehearsing the joke. And he's watching him. He finally, after about 10 minutes after rehearsing, goes up to Lewis Millstone. Millstone feels him on his shoulder and says, Greg, is something wrong? He goes, Millie, did you know that 80% of all degenerates are hard of hearing? Shit. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> he said, great guy, don't let him near a comedy. <laughs> Ah, pretty right. funny in the and voice the from picture, Brazil, By though. the way, the other picture that I chose, only because I didn't want to take, you know, I didn't want to take Casablanca or something sure. like that, you know. Uh, the other one I took was, uh, I wanted something that I thought the audience, I said, let me get a little bit offbeat. I said, there's, when I grew up, when I was in college in the 70s, there were three, during that period, there were three filmmakers, I think, that really were holding a mirror up to America and showing a different side of it. And they, to me, they were Hal Ashby, Robert Altman, and Michael Ritchie. And I said, and Michael Ritchie did a movie called Smile. Sure, we know that Which one. is about beauty pageants. And it's very much of its time. It's very much, it's not going to be for everybody. But I remember watching this and I started, this helped form my satiric point of view about playing something straight and it being really funny. And that's, that was the other movie I showed was Smile. Good choice. We had and Bruce Stern and, yeah, and Barbara Yeah, we had here. two yeah. Yeah. But yeah. he made Downhill Racer and The Candidate. I mean, yes. he's, he's somebody that- He had a run. Yeah, he Downhill did. Downhill Racer, The Candidate, and The Bad News Bears in yeah. a row. Yeah. And then from there, it goes straight downhill. Except, I mean, he made a lot of bad movies, except the only thing that ever came near it was he did a movie for HBO about the Texas Chill. Oh, yeah, the mom. Holly Hunter one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's that good. Was, that's like old Michael Ritchie. Yeah. But but uh, I think he just was in a hock for a lot of money. Ashby really had a hot. good run, too. Now, great. great run. Now, what what are what some, movies did you pick, Gilbert? What movies? Did oh, you pick? okay. Uh, I picked uh, Freaks. That was the one Todd by Browning. Todd Browning. Sure, sure. Um, That's so, okay. th the conversation. Good movie. The original of Mice and Men. The one with Lon Chaney Jr. Also yes. Lewis Millstone, I think. Yeah, also Lewis yes, Wilson. Yes, And yes. The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster. Burt Lancaster. You know who's in that? Joan Rivers is in that. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, very good. Yeah. Very good. Oh, well, the cults, those are good. Those are offbeat movies. It's funny that that out of the, they didn't, we didn't really pick any comedy. Well, I guess to be or not, to be all smiled to. I'm, I'm wrong about that. Yeah, I, I, did, I, I remember when the guy was talking about mine, they said they were shocked that I didn't pick any comedies. You didn't pick any comedies when we started doing those movie recommendations on the show. And never recommended a comedy. No, you went something like 16 weeks. Boys from Brazil, yeah. Mr. <laughs> Klein, 
Bobby? <laughs> yeah, Bobby? Uh, Pepper G. Robinson movies. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> a great thing about that podcast, uh, your podcast, Robert, as I was saying, the bookings, the Joe Bologna episode, too, another oh, guy we missed out on here. Not only Landau, two guys we were trying to get. What, what a he joy to hear the two of you guys talking baseball and Brooklyn baseball. Oh, he was great. Joe Bologna was a great guy. Uh, he started out as a director, you know. He was a director yeah. of commercials. And then he and Renee, you know, they started. Wasn't it great him talking about lovers and other strangers? Wonderful. And how, they, how they screw, you know, he, you know, it's like the guy didn't realize what the hell was funny. You know who else? You know, Gilly, you know what I watched about two, three weeks ago? Was our After the Fox. Ah! Oh, there you go. After the Fox was on. Ba-bum, bum ba-bum, bum ba-bum, bum It's so good. Who is the Fox? I am, I the, am fox. the fox. <laughs> Who are you? I am, I am me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but, I, but did you, you know, until we talked about it, did you know it was Neil Simon? Yeah, it was Neil Simon wrote it and Victorio yep. De Sica directed it. I spoke with Neil Simon about it one time. And he said that, he says, never let anybody direct a comedy who doesn't speak the language that you're in. <laughs> That's a good, good piece of advice. He said, yeah, because he had no idea. He had, But what he'd do is he would turn to sellers, and he'd go, is that funny? And sellers would say yes, you know, uh, because that is their stuff in that movie that is just, and and the most underappreciated performance in the history of comedy oh, wait. by Victor Mature uh, as yes. Tony Powell. Yeah, Victor Mature's daughter is on Facebook, and she listens to this podcast and she got well, very excited when she heard you guys singing the After the Fox theme on your last oh, episode. Oh, it's, it's back rack. It's another back yep. rack song. And yep. I thought Martin Balsam was Great. very funny. I uh, recently did a play reading with his wife, with his daughter, uh, t- uh, with his daughter. Uh, Talia. And, uh, that we, I talked about Marty, and I talked about After the Fox. At Kim Tamiroff is great in that. Oh, yes. It's, got a great, it's a great cast. It's But Victor Mature, when I I got to meet him, Gil. Yeah. I was at a charity golf tournament. The Frank Sinatra used to have a charity golf tournament, and Victor Mature played in it. And I came up to him, I said, I want to talk to you about one movie. And he said, After the Fox. I said, yes. And the same thing, Robert Stack was also at that tournament. And I said, I want to talk to you about one movie. He goes, to be or not to be. I said, yes. <laughs> you know? That's funny. Well, it's the same way when I met James Garner. Now, James Garner, they, by the way, most of these guys know Garner, we all play cards at Norby's house. That's where I met, you know, I didn't meet Lando. I met him at Mistress, but Joe Bologna and all these guys, it was a card game. A dollar, Nor- Norby Walters, on. just to explain to our listeners. Yeah, yeah. yeah Norby Walters is a, all, an old-time agent, and he, now he holds a, like a dollar card game, and every old actor, you know, <laughs> plays in this game. Brian Cranston plays and, and uh, you know, Jimmy Woods and a couple other guys too, but, but mostly it's, it's, it's all, all of us old guys. I'm, I'm the kid there. The, um, but Peter Marshall played the other day. Peter Marshall is 93 years yeah, old. Yeah, and sharp. And, and sharp as a tack. And you know how, Gilbert, you, you know, we talk about stories and you say, well, this guy worked with Jack Nicholson and this guy worked with, you know, Martin Landau. Or this guy, you know, once saw Jack Benny and stuff like that. You know who he was telling stories about? I was with Jason Alexander. He's saying, you know, I remember when I saw Jolson, and we sat and and and, and Jason and I looked at each other. Jolson, you saw Jolson. <laughs> I mean, he's like, holy shit. He talked about how Jack Benny ripped off a bit of his. Uh, he ripped the, you know, he was a part of a comedy team, Noonan and Marshall. Oh yeah, yes, and, yes. And uh, he talked about how he did it, and that Jack Benny ripped them off. And he did it, and Benny came to him later and says, I did your routine. I just wanted you to know. You know, it's like, <laughs> and he, but he, thanks, Jack. You know, it's like, you know, he did it in London or anything. We had but, Peter uh, yeah, on so here. I got all these, 
So I got all these guys from the card game. That's that's where they came from and stuff like that. It, was Eli Wallach in that card game too? No. Eli's oh. an East Coast guy. Okay. He's an East Coast guy. Okay. He was a great man though. Yeah, I know you worked with I him mean, on Mistress. Mistress had the best, it was the best acting class of my life. I mean, because it was Tribeca's first film. It was their first film with Barry Primus, the writer-director who cast me. Uh, he was very good friends with De Niro. And he'd been trying to get this movie made for many years. And they picked me and... Uh, and, and Bette Midler had a little sub, something to say in it because she had seen me at a clubs a couple. She was very lucky, very helpful to me. And, and so I auditioned a couple of times. And I got into a fight with Barry. And he liked that. So he cast me. But listen, it was it was De Niro, uh, Danny Aiello, Eli Wallach. Sure. Christopher Walken, Martin Landau. Great cast. Uh, Gene Smart. When, uh, Lori Metcalf played my wife. Mm-hmm. Cheryl Lee Ralph. I mean, you're talking. I would every do. It's the best acting class I ever had in my life. And a, it it's great. a movie people should see. Yeah, it's a good movie. We got to talk about Batman, Robert. It's thirty years. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> yeah, what do you want to know? <laughs> uh, I mean, you were. You, I saw a couple interviews with you giving credit to the great Marion Doherty for starters. Yes. Oh yeah. Without without her, I'm not in the movie. Marion was great to me. Marion was, I was very fortunate. Marion was a fan of mine. I mean, she brought me in, Gilly, you know that I auditioned for George Roy Hill for Garp? Wow. To play the lead? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, they went with this Williams kid. Did you, <laughs> did you know Gilbert uh, lost a role to Billy Barty, Robert? No, I did not. Yes. I, I had an audition with Mel Brooks. Yes. For uh, one of his classic comedies, Life Stinks. Yes, 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 of course, I know the film. And uh, and and I lost out to Billy Barty. Yeah, well, that, that's Mel, that's old Hollywood, you know. You can, yeah, yes. <laughs> but it, uh, but the Williams kid had no talent that I, never mind. Yeah. The, uh, you, <laughs> hey, you know, here's but, something I wanted to ask you. With what movies that are universally accepted as great movies do you not do you not like or you respect but don't enjoy Ooh, good question first one that comes to mind is 2001 yes 2001 i respect totally and it bores the shit out of me uh you know any movie that's got cure Dulay for two and a half hours it's tough in fact the famous story was that after that movie cure Dulay went on to do the italian job and with noel coward and no, when Noel Coward was asked, what do you think of, you know, coming off of 2001, what do you think of Kier Dulé? His answer was, Kier Dulé gone tomorrow. That's, that's hip. And do you know, <laughs> I, like that. Don't, I don't remember who the movie critic was, but he said 2001 is a great movie. It's just not a very good movie. Well, again, it's personal taste. I mean, I find it boring. I mean, people I respect, but I respect. I'll tell you another one. Okay. I don't, this one I like, but I, I just, Raging Bull. Raging Bull to me. Interesting. Is a great piece of filmmaking about a very uninteresting subject. I don't find Jake LaMont a very interesting, you know, a very intriguing subject, but it's a great piece of filmmaking. So I, I don't think I'd put that quite in the same class. No, I mean, I don't like 2001. I, can't, I will actually sit and watch Raging Bull and, you know, and I get into it. You know, it's a movie I didn't like at first much and I've grown to love and I've seen it more and more times. King of Comedy. I didn't like it the first time yeah. I saw it that much. It, and that's a tough one. You know, and I've grown to like it more and more and more. It's and another way, anti-hero, a little bit yeah, like, like La Mata. Yeah, yeah uh, I think uh, uh, Roger Ebert said about it, 
it's it's a frustrating film to watch. Oh, I got the one. Are you ready? For yeah. The, the biggest one. The movie I don't like. What's the for up until like nineteen? If up before the Godfather, let's say, what's the most famous movie of all time? Gone, yeah, with, gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. I can't stand. <laughs> Interesting. I'll tell you why. Yeah. I'll tell you why. A couple of reasons here. One is the central character is a real bitch. I would use a different word, but it's like I'm not popular. I mean, why, here's a woman who was stringing along her this other guy. She's in love with her sister's husband, trying to t- steal him away, the whole thing, and she's fighting for the cause. The cause. What fucking cause? Slavery? You know, there is a great play that was written called Mag- uh, Moonlight and Magnolias. I forgot who wrote it. They did it at Lincoln Center some years back, and I actually auditioned to play uh, Ben Hecht. Because it's a story where they, it's a story, it's a three pander, and it's Victor Fleming, Ben Hecht, and I forgot who the third person is in this thing. Uh, uh, but any, oh, Selznick, of course. And Hecht was called into right, you know, because it's in trouble. And Hecht wants no part of this thing because he goes, wait a minute, what cause? Why are we making this a hero? She's doing this, she's cheating on this guy, she hates this guy, she's going behind him. Here's the guy who loves her, he's she's treating him like shit, and they're fighting for this cause. What cause? Slavery? She had and he hated every second of it. So that's I have a problem with Gone with the Wind. I just don't interesting. You know, this is not the craftsmanship of it. I'm not talking about that. I just I just don't like the lead character, and it's like I'm not rooting for her. I'm, you know, it's like so. I, by the way, you know who else is in that movie? Ward Bond. Oh, he is. Oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> very good. However, now I got to give Ward a couple of props, though, because Alexander Payne and I were talking about this the other day. He said, "Robert, have you ever seen a movie called Gentleman Jim?" I said, "Of course, with Errol Flynn, uh, and uh, Ward Bond plays John L. Sullivan in that movie, and he's great." He's great in the movie, I have to say. You know, um, you know, so I have to give him his props there. You know, you gotta separate the personal from the professional. But uh, you know, so you know, there's one there. But gone with the wind. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. So so far, did Gone with the Wind? What what else was yours on your list, Gilly? Oh God. I don't know. There's a few. I asked the question. And it's like, I don't know if I have an ill. I'll give you a more recent one. Yeah. There will be blood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the emperor's new clothes as far as I'm concerned. Good acting, though. Yeah. I'm an oil man. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing I, my best John I Houston. just didn't get, <laughs> the, I didn't Gitz, get that one. The future, Mr. Gitz, the future. I, yes. I like the kid, Paul Dano. In that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, not, not, I like Paul, but not in that movie. I yeah. just, you know, it's, it's just personal taste. Um, he's a good actor. But, but you I know, you mentioned like that Errol that Flynn. Errol yeah. Flynn, major Jew hater. I, I never heard that. You know, there was a guy who wrote the book said he was a Nazi, and everybody tells me this guy wouldn't give a fuck about anything. He just wanted to get laid. Was <laughs> <laughs> he supposed to be a Nazi spy? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that Paul was a little you know, nutty. People could write, and then the Lincoln was gay, and Errol Flynn is a spy, and you know, it's like anybody can write anything. You know, Ty Cobb's a sweetheart of a guy. <laughs> Santa Claus. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go back to Batman only because the fans demand it, Robert. Yes, of course. Uh, of course uh, the the most expensive movie made to date at that, at that time, point yes. which i didn't know absolutely absolutely yeah so That's a, true. a yeah. lot of pre- well obviously a lot of pressure riding on burton but you give him the lion's share of the credit without a doubt now but i have to say he does get the lion's share but i have to say uh, john peters and peter goober 
were really good producers. They got this thing made. Michael Euston tried forever to for get years. it made. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it, I got to give him props. But, but it's Tim Burton. You know, it's Tim Burton's vision. Uh, you know, I was not a fan of the TV show. It was too jokey for me. It was mm-hmm. too campy for me. So when this, when I read the first draft, the first script of Batman, I said, boy, this is going to work. And I said, Tim Burton's doing this? This is the right person. Then came the casting of Michael Keaton. And people don't remember the shit that that caused. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there was social media back then, there is no way I don't think Warner Brothers would have been able to put up with Michael Keaton's casting. Because I don't know if you remember how much shit. My, I do Mr. remember. Mo- we yeah. do, Mr. Yeah. Mom is sure. Mr. Mom is playing Batman? I mean, in, in England, it was Mr. Mum. The, uh, uh, but it was like so. But then I knew Michael from stand-up. And I had seen Michael's movie called Clean and Sober. Yeah. And he is great. And Michael's, Michael Keaton might be my favorite actor working today. I, I'll tell you, an underrated film. Gilly, did you see the one about uh, Ray Kroc? About, about McDonald's? Oh, I didn't yes, see that. Yes. Oh, I, didn't see I that. saw it three times. That? I love that movie. What was that's the name like of that Cobb. thing? That's another one. It's called The Founder. The Founder. The, the, that's like Cobb. You know, it's like, I, I really enjoyed that movie. And you uh, see what a scumbag Croc was. Yeah, but at the same time, he was, yeah, exactly, but he was brilliant. I mean, he, the other guys didn't want to bend an inch. They didn't want to do anything, and he just said, you're wrong, and he took it over. And, you know, and he was, pre- and of course, he takes the other guy's wife at the end, which is very funny. The um, But, but uh, uh, no, Michael has done work. I mean, the founder. Good work. Uh, he, he's uh, one of those can Bird do no Man, wrong guys. Birdman. What about Spotlight? Good yeah. movie, Spotlight. Yeah. I mean, Michael's done such movie great called work. Movie Game so- Six. Game six, I have seen. I like that movie yeah, a lot. Yeah. The so then you had you know you had Jack Nicholson, I mean, which was at the top of it. I mean, he's 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 the biggest star in the world probably at that time, and he's such perfect casting. Um, uh, and the studio wanted him. He just done the Witches of Eastwick for them, and uh, it was a lot of money. And Prince had just done Purple Rain, so they were going to shoehorn these Prince songs in, even though Tim didn't want it. He didn't want the Prince sh- songs. No, no, no. Tim did not have Final Cut or anything like that at this time. Um, the uh, but it, you know, and it's crazy, and they are intrusive, but they work. Yeah, it does work, and. Uh, I mean, it was just, and the Anton first, I would, we shot at the Pinewood Studios in London and I would go to work every day and see Gotham City and it was just something to see. I mean, it was just a lot. I was really fortunate, you know, I and was super what do fortunate. you remember about Nicholson? Didn't you guys uh, drive to work to the set? A couple of times he gave me, yeah, yeah, he gave me lift. Usually coming back from the set. I mean, he's the greatest raconteur in the world. (laughs) He could tell stories. He's talking about, you know, You know, I, 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 one day I'm with Princess Margaret, and I'm coking her up pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You know, and I'm hearing story, and I believe every fucking word he's saying. And then he tells me, and uh, about, see, I, he told me how to smuggle weed into London. And like an idiot, <laughs> I, 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 I did it. He'd say, Bobby, what you do is you mail a fan letter to yourself saying, you don't know me, but here's a little something to keep you going. That way, if they catch you, you go, I don't know who the fuck this guy is. <laughs> now, and I did Very this, and, and, and believe me, if I would have spent the time preparing for the part as I did you know, grinding up the weed and putting it in there, I would have been much better, much better. <laughs> Were there a couple of tense table reads? At Batman. Oh yeah. Well, what happened was, what happened was, remember, like you said, it's the first, it's the most expensive movie ever made, 
And the original Vicki Vale is Sean Young. She's come over, and she's been in the news because there was a thing with her and James Woods, and she was leaving voodoo dolls or some shit with James Woods. They had done a movie called The Boost together, and she was in the news a lot. And John Peters had a hard-on for her. You know, he wanted to fuck her. So she's Vicki Vale, and we have a table. About two weeks before shooting, we all got over there for rehearsal, and there was a table read. And it was Marion Dougherty was there, and the and John Peters and Peter Goober and Tim, Jack, Michael, Sean, and me. And we go through the table read of the first draft of the draft, Sam Ham, and it goes really well. I mean, it went well. You could feel it in the room. I mean, God damn, we're onto something here. Now, as is custom, after you do something like this, you go and get everybody's notes. The director goes over. Jack's got some suggestions. Michael's got his thoughts. You know, and you do it in you know in, in you know in order. You know, you do it in rank rank order. Jack goes first, then Michael, then Sean, then me. And when some things get taken out, some things get moved in. They add a little here, take away a little there. Well, so now comes a week. We're only days away from shooting, and now all the exchanges have been incorporated into the script. And now the big brass has flown in. I mean, there's twice as many people at the table read. You have all the chairman of Time Warner and the chairman of Warner Brothers, and everybody's at this table read. And it's going pretty damn good again. And then Sean, who has lost a couple of lines, suddenly says, I feel like I'm disappearing from the pages. And then for the rest of the read, reads her part in a monotone like this. And all the energy goes out of the room. Now, you got to remember, people's big jobs are at stake here. The first day of shooting is the scene between, they're shooting the scene between Jack Nicholson and Jack Palance. They're going to shoot Jack Palance out in two days. So while they're doing that, there was a scene where Vicki Vale and, and, and Bruce Wayne are on Wayne Manor and they're going horseback riding on the estate. So Michael and Sean go horseback, you know, they go with the trainer and the, the wrangler and everything. they go horseback riding and Sean gets thrown from the horse and separates her shoulder. Now, I don't know this till I arrive on the set because I wasn't shooting that day, but I decided to go for solidarity, you know, team player. And I show up on the set and I go, what's going on? He goes, what's going on? Sean just separated her shoulder. They got to find out if she can, uh, if she can continue. So then I go to the, to the, to luncheon and there's the head of the studio. And I said, what's happening? I mean, what if Sean can't, uh, you know, what if she can't continue? And, you know, if the doctor says she can't continue, and before the doctor even gets there, he says, she can't continue. Wow. See, I go, well, I did the doctor say, she can't continue. So, so now, so now they can't wait to get rid of her. So now the problem comes, we started shooting, you know, and so we don't have a Vicky Vale. So the first choice you know, uh, John Peters says, let's go to Michelle Pfeiffer because they had just done The Witches of Eastwick together, which was a huge hit for Warner Brothers. Well, they want to go to Michelle Pfeiffer, but Michael Keaton hears about this. And Michael had recently had an affair with, with Michelle for quite a while. And it broke up, and now Michael is trying to get back with his ex-wife who was joining him in London. And the thought of Michelle Pfeiffer showing up on set... <laughs> 
<laughs> is does not sit well with Michael. And Michael can be tough. Michael's a really, you know, Michael's a Pittsburgh kid. And Michael says there is no fucking way that Michelle Pfeiffer is setting foot on this step on this set at this time. There is no fucking way. I will go after you and I'll rip your throat out. And John Peters is a boxer. He's a pretty tough guy. And so they back away and then they go to Kim Basinger. Now, she's got to be on the set in 48 hours. You think she's got some leverage? Her agent's got some leverage in, in negotiations? So not only does Kim get the part, she gets her assistant to come with her. She gets to design her own outfits, her own, which drew the wrath of the two-time Oscar-winning uh, costume designer, uh, uh, Bob Ringwood, a great designer and a great guy, and who she keeps waiting for three or four hours. And But she had such leverage. And on top of that, within a week, she's moved in with John Peters. <laughs> so, wow, it worked, so, so it worked out. Yeah, but I got to tell you, at the end of the day, you know, things, you know, the movie's pretty big hit. Yeah, I mean, with, with all of those things going wrong, Yet everything manages to gel. Yeah, in fact, I I would say you know what's interesting about the Batman series is um, the first series, not the uh, not the uh, Dark Knight. I'm going to take them separately. That's that's a different the Burton and the Schumacher films. Yes, right. If you put the Burton and Schumacher films back to back to back to back to back, my theory is every hour gets worse. The first hour of the first Batman is dynamite. The second hour. It's pretty good. The next hour, the first hour, the second bat of Batman Returns is okay. The second hour is like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> then come the Schumacher movies. <laughs> and his sensibilities is much more like, like the TV series. Yeah, it's a little campier. Oh, a little bit campier. Yeah. Nipples on Robin. Come on. Yeah. You know, the bat suit and stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, he got to know Joel. Joel used to, you know, Joel's a little bit more flamboyant. So, those movies. Now, the, people ask me what I think about the the, the recent, uh, you know, the Dark Knight movies, which I sort of enjoy. Here's my, and, and this is a generational thing, and it's just a personal taste. The and this is, and it's definitely generational. The difference is the original Batman's, at least the one I did. It's darker, but it's still fun. It's still fun. Jack is having fun. Do you know, it's 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 fun. The latest incarnations, I don't think, are fun. The Nolan, just, the Nolan pictures. Yeah, then yeah. I don't find them having fun. I think they're incredibly well crafted. They're terrific pictures, and you have to. And I and I will not say anything. I just don't see the fun in them. Did you see them, Gil? Any of the, no. the, Chris, the Christian Bale uh, Batman pictures? No, I don't think I've ever. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, the, the, and what's interesting because you know science fiction and fantasy are not my favorite genre. So, with rare exceptions, the original Day of the Earth stood still. Good movie. Oh yeah. Oh, I'm Michael getting Rennie. back to a previous topic <laughs> we were talking about. Uh, good morning, Vietnam. Do you think any of it was true? There was an Adrian Cronauer. He did have a radio show. He did was a little bit more, uh, uh, he was more offbeat. He was a little bit more, you know, anti-establishment. But it wasn't Robin Williams. It was a, remember, let's stop and think. It was a vehicle for Robin Williams. Now, let's be, you know, it's like, just like, you know, Naked Do Dandy is a vehicle for James Cagney. Just like, you know, these are vehicles. So you're going to tailor it to the the talents of the of the star. Um People, you know, he wasn't, a stu- but he did exist, and he was a DJ in Vietnam about that time. And that movie is is the success is Robin Williams, Barry Levinson, 
And um, and and you have to give a, some props to the producer, the late Larry Bresner, who we knew, did you? And that great um, cast. I mean, those wonderful characters. Yeah, we did have a pretty good Bruno, Bruno, Bruno J T Walsh, J T Walsh, Noble, Noble Willingham. Willingham, and uh, who else? Richard Portnow, yeah, for, uh, Forrest Whitaker, and and Richard Forrest Portnow, Whitaker. and Richard Edson. and Uncle Floyd, Uncle and Uncle Floyd. Floyd. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great cast. Yeah, it you was guys fun. looked like you were having the time of your lives making that. We did. It was hot, but we had a great time, and we all hung out together. Tell, before you know, we get you out of here, Robert, and we'll do the we'll do the plugs too. You're on Cameo, like Gilbert is. Yes, and we'll, yes, pl- we'll yeah. plug, we'll plug uh, the the uh, the upcoming uh, festival. Yeah, the, uh, the terrific com is uh, the terrific com is when that's coming up soon. That's April 9th through 11th, and Chiller Theater is in October. I think about 27 to 29. And uh, I did a movie, but I have no idea when the hell this movie's coming out. Shirley, it's about Shirley Jackson, the famous uh, horror. Oh, author. the lottery. Yes, yeah, yes, with the lottery. Her. Elizabeth Moss plays her, but I don't know when it's coming out. It's an independent film, and I haven't heard anything. So, um, okay, so yes. wild card question: either this is either a question from a fan, or you want to tell us a quick Bruno Kirby story if you got one. Bruno is one of the great human beings of my life. Uh, Bruno helped me get the. He's one of the great acting teachers, you know, and, and acting students. And when I was auditioned, the day before I went to audition for Bull Durham, I called up Bruno because I would anything I would do to call Bruno. Bruno would, was my guru. And the part that I played in Bull Durham, the, on the page, he only got like four lines in the whole movie, five lines maybe. And I was trying to find a hook for him. And Bruno said, and he broke it down, and he'd say, well, let's think about this character. He's the pitching coach on a minor league team. It's And the staff of a minor league team at that point consists of the manager and the pitching coach. That's it. And he says, it seems to me that if the manager is promoted, he's going to take his pitching coach with him. And I said, that's all I need, Bruno, because now I know he's a yes man. That's all I need. So no matter what the skipper said, and I'm auditioning, the skipper would say, Larry, and he's like, this guy needs to get tougher. That's right, Larry, you got to be more tougher. Come on, get some balls, get tougher. They're lollygags, they're lollygags. You know, the, <laughs> Love that. I was just the old, I just was a yes man. That's what I was. I was a yes man. And that was, you know, Bruno. And Bruno was the, as they called him, the, the, uh, the maitre d' of life. It was very sad. You know, he developed leukemia, and he went in for radiation, and 10 days he was dead. Yeah. My friend who's a doctor really thinks, he goes, well, it sounds to me like they OD'd him. He goes, you got to remember, when you take radiation, it's a, it's a guess. It's an educated guess, you know, to do it. So it sounds to me like they might have given him too much. He could play anything. He could play straight roles. He's so fucking funny in, in Good Morning Vietnam as Hawk. I mean, it's a brave performance. He's great. He's great. Because he has I mean, to play an he, asshole. Yeah, he's young Clemenza in Godfather yes, Two. Just, he's uh, the side. He's uh, uh, the, he's uh, Billy Crystal's best friend in Harry Met Sally. Such a great loss. He's in the original uh, uh, City Slickers. The um, oh no, Bruno, I miss. He, he's, I've, Bruno was, was a loss. And also Bruno your friend Trey Wilson too. Another guy we lost. Trey to, was great. Guy we lost Trey, to, Trey to dies young. out of nowhere. I mean, yeah. just he was. He had just you know we were just finished Bull Durham. I don't think the, is the movie out yet. Yeah, it's out. Because uh, the movie came out, and then Trey, who, of course, is best known for playing Nathan Arizona sure, and Raising Arizona, uh, he had just finished his role as um, Sam, what's the guy, Sam, uh, Sun Records. He found Elf, Sam Phillips. He played Sam Phillips in Great Balls of Fire. Oh, yeah. He's been married he to the just, mob. He was on a run. Right. So he had just finished. You know, uh, uh, Great Balls of Fire with my college classmate, Dennis Quaid. We were college classmates. And he was on his way to the airport 
because the Coen brothers had given him the lead sure. in their next movies. He was going to play the lead Miller in Miller's Crossing. He was going to play the part that eventually wound up going to Albert Finney. Right. And he has an aneurysm, brain aneurysm, on his way about to leave to the airport and dies. Tragic. And that was just because we had a memorial service because Dennis Quaid, they were shooting Great Balls of Fire when I was shooting Batman at the same time in London. And I was over at the uh, memorial service. Two, two talents lost uh, far, too, far too soon. Oof. Gil? Funny, well, way to, yeah. funny way to end the show. Great note to end the show. Yes. Well. <laughs> <laughs> we like to end man, it on a man, fun oh, note. Okay, okay, then quickly, a, f- a question from a fan, if you can go quick. Uh, Buddy Spencer wants to know of Robert, if he could act in any John Wayne movie, which one? Oh, well, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Oh, yes. <laughs> Good call. Yes. <laughs> the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Are you kidding me? With Lee Marvin? Good one. I would yeah. be there with the last bad guy Lee ever played. The uh, oh, the I love the man who shot Liberty. That's in my top five does westerns. You Jack know. Elam turn up in that one somewhere? No, Jack Elam does not. But Liberty Valance's two sidekicks are Struther Martin and Lee Van Cleef. You're right. Oh, that's You're right. right. You're right. Yes. Very good. Very good. I yeah. mean, our good, bu- our good buddy who uh, uh, Andy Devine because he gives his half Torah in that movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right, we lifted a, it up again. A great, a great performance by Edmund O'Brien. Yes, as, uh, yes. The editor, the editor of the Shinbone Star, Dutton Peabody. And it's got that great line. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Yes. That's it. Yes. And the other great thing about it is Jimmy Stewart plays a young guy just out of law school who comes to the West. And I think, I think Jimmy Stewart was 57, just out of law school when he did that movie. He comes to law school. He just got out. He's about, he's about he's about sixty. It's like the, uh, but like that Bendix. would be the you know that's that's a great and Woody Strode is Woody in that Strode. Movie. Love yes. it. All right, oh, we, that's a good, we lifted great it back movie. up again. Yes, we did. Okay, and so- it has and it has a Burt Backrack song that is not in the movie. That's very good. Uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Yes. That's right. Gene. He shot Liberty Valance. He was the bravest of Except them all. Gene Pitney. When Gene Liberty Pitney. Valance came to, came town, to town, the men the would step aside. Step aside. They, they step aside. When Liberty Valance came to town, the, the women, women would run and hide. hide. Because the point of a gun was the only law that liberty understood. The man who shot Liberty Valance, he shot Liberty Valance. He was the bravest of them all. We're going to send you guys on tour. Hal David, Back Rack and Hal David, and the song's not in the movie. Wow. I, I didn't know it was Burp. No wonder it was so catchy. Robert, yeah, you're the no, kind of guy we can talk to for hours and, and do all this stuff. So, okay, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to the very funny, our friend, Robert Wall. Where can people see you and get and get autographs and hang out with you and Billy D? Uh, that's Terrificom. That'll be, uh, at the Mohegan Sun Casino, August 9th through 11th. And then Schiller Theater is in Persephone, New Jersey. That's October 25 through 27. You know what's going to be there? You know, Tony Danza did it last year. And I don't know if Tony's doing it this year, but something, I'm going to talk to Tony because if he is, we have never done any Hollywood Hollywood Nights, Nights reunion. Yeah, and, and and boy, is that a cult film? We'll come see you, Chiller. Outside of Batman and Arliss, I get yeah. stopped more than for that than anything else. Hollywood Nights. 
We'll come see you in Chiller if Gilbert so. if Gilbert's not on tour. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Appreciate Robert. It. Thanks for Thank schlepping through you, traffic, Robert. man. Okay, my pleasure, guys. Have a great time. Okay, pal. Nice. Bye. Godfrey's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Godfrey and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn 